welcome to the ET PhD team podcast. You have all three of us today, myself, Anna and Louis. Hello, hello. 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 How are we? I'm yeah. good, thanks. How are you both? <laughs> I think I need to direct it. I need to be like, Anna, how are you? Louis, how are you? Because <laughs> <laughs> we all just want to talk. Um, yes, Louis, you're good. How are you, Anna? Yeah, good, thank you. Okay. Good. We missed you last week. What last weekly? I'm sure you both were amazing as always. So um, yeah, it was nice to have a, a week off and feel refreshed coming back though. Do you so, know? Um, I, getting back to it. I can kind of hear it in your voice, and I don't know if it's just me. Like you sat like Anna's not in her head. Like you sound just more chill and it's more like, laid back. <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah, it's, I think <laughs> taking time away with the fam and um, take, I took a lot of time off social media compared to usual as well, which was really nice. Felt kind of weird not posting a couple of times a day and um, doing lots of stories. And I kind of made a conscious effort to be like, as much as I wanted to share some of it, it was like, actually, me and Holly are both really good at just like being in the moment, like putting our phones away and just like taking stuff in and so made a conscious effort to stay off my phone a lot more. Um, so yeah, it, it felt like a nice break and I'll try and schedule in a few more during the next 12 months um, because I think it's really, really good for myself, but also like I've come back and I'm like, right, got, I've had a lot of time to sort of reflect on how things are going with work and clients and lots of interesting things hopefully coming in the future. So yeah, it was good. It was really good. Good. Well, we survived just, didn't we? Just about. I mean, it's, it's been a struggle. Yeah, it has. Um, but no, it's good that you got away, especially from 8pm tonight, if they're going to be like, no one's allowed to leave again, then you've done yeah. exceptionally well. Anna, sucks for you. I, uh, genuinely, I was like, um, thinking about maybe heading towards Snowdon. Oh, nice. And then yesterday, I got like notification from the news app that... There were four local restrictions in Wales. I'm like, okay. And then obviously today, who knows? But can you not travel into Wales? Is that the rules? No, I don't know Wales. I don't know exactly where Snowdon is. So I don't know. We'll have a look. If you want to go, you can stay with me because it's about an hour and 40 minutes from mine. So if you, you, if just the places that are shot, then you can. (laughs) Yeah. We'll look into it. But. I know it sucks. It's think just an excellent year. I know. I know. I, I think. I think that selfishly, I think that we as a group hopefully will be okay if if we can still communicate with someone and we can still go to the gyms. I think that we we will hopefully manage it okay. Me and my mate were just like we'll just lock down together if we have to. So we both had nervous breakdowns this year, so we were like we'll just find it and then we'll be fine. <laughs> Yeah, we'll be fine. We'll manage it. All we could do is live for now. Like you said, like you kind of just have to go right. Well, what can I do right now? And then we'll just deal with it and not buy loads of toilet paper and just manage it. (laughs) One of my clients actually said today, um, because yeah, there's some uncertainty with some of the plans that she had in place, and she was like, "Well, all I can do is control the controllables, and whatever happens else, I just got to go with it." Yeah. Excellent plan. 
so good and we you know what like you can say that all you want but to actually go do you know what this is genuinely what i'm going to do i'm genuinely just going to focus on what i can control like that's really empowering it's hard to do but it's very empowering when you do it oh she's a boss right (laughs) have some of that please right now (laughs) (laughs) so we've had tons of questions again which is awesome i want to cover a couple of the questions that we got last week that we didn't have time to go through um, and then we can crack on with the ones from this week. So everyone who's submitting questions in your check-ins, it's awesome. You'll have them if you're one-to-one or if you're in the BMC, you'll have these questions in your check-ins. So it's really, really good. So if there's something that, again, there's something you want us to talk about in more detail um, or just something that you think other people will benefit from, then please do ask um, in that box on your check-ins. Okay, so a couple from last week. The first one the longer you go without a period, is it dangerous or can it be? Um, girls that reverse out after extreme dieting, what can help them get their hormones back towards normal levels with normal functions, i.e. regular periods? So this was submitted a few weeks ago, but I think it was my my client who is a couple of weeks out from a show, um, who's super lean. Um, and yeah, so... Is it so? Yeah, two questions really. The longer you go without a period, is it more dangerous? And then, what can you do post show or post extreme diet to get things back to normal? Um, so, Anna, you have a couple of clients who compete. Do you, uh, uh, without obviously speaking about them specifically, but do they, any of them have experience with losing their periods or have they managed to maintain it? They've maintained. <laughs> Sorry. but yeah, you <laughs> I know that's awesome the thing is, is it's not it's mostly like that comes down to a couple of things like you're excellent coaching of course and then then taking then genetics as well like genetics yeah. was a huge role in that but what like what kind of things do you do I suppose then in terms of how you coach them um and then if so you obviously experienced HA at some point like what's your experience of that so, so, in terms um, of coaching, it's, um, I try and make sure as minimal stress as possible, whether it's like through exercise, lifestyle, um, diet. Um, they both keep a flexible approach to dieting, and I'm just checking in on fat levels. Um, and then, yeah, that's, I, I mean, it's one of those things like you said not everybody's going to get it um but dieting down to those extreme levels of leanness it's a possibility and so um the client who's competed before and I mean even though my prep was my preps were completely different in how I dieted um both with myself and clients I calories were straight back up to new maintenance and then slowly build well building on that um and I mean with myself obviously I did have the experience of losing them um but I'd say within a month they were back a month or two I've I mean I count myself really lucky in that respect but I think that's the main thing is not prolonging the diet process yeah I think you're completely right I think the fat monitoring is so important like on prep it's fat's always the first thing to go well it's usually the first thing to go unless you've got a coach that makes everyone do keto for example um but that's usually the first to go and it's something that like do you do you do you work you may or may not do this but do you work to like a certain 
percentage of calories that you say I want fat to be at this intake or is it just when it you notice that it's consistently dropping like quite low do you have a, a quantitative number or I try and get them to aim for at least 20 percent yeah I mean personal preference obviously um if they want more great I mean I'm not gonna fob them off with keto by <laughs> of course but yeah. if if they naturally prefer fats great um, but yeah, I just check in and aim for at least 20%. Yeah, that's the same as me. The other thing you can really do, and, and I know that Anna does this anyway, is is having things like diet breaks are really good to, to that helps to manage stress levels. So I know this person we've had, we she went on holiday, so there's a bit of a diet break there, and that can help reduce stress and allow a little bit more of a healthier cycle and hopefully maintenance of cycle but also it obviously brings your calories up which is which is really helpful the issue often with diet breaks is that people often just focus predominantly on carbs because the physiological benefits of having a diet break with higher carb in terms of your um, leptin levels and your ghrelin levels and and your glycogen restoration is better than if you have it from fat but at the same time if you're a female you have to then consider well actually do i want those physiological benefits or do i want the potential even if they're minute benefits from like the increase in fat intake. Um, and in terms of post-show, there's so many different things you can do. Like some people, I know some competitors, pro competitors who, for example, Kerry, who I'm quite good friends with, she, we were talking about this and she took a whole month off training after her last show and got her period back straight away. And that worked for her. Um, often that's really difficult for people to do a post-show is just to say I'm going to take a month off and then if you're struggling with maybe overeating for example which a lot of people do taking a month off can be quite detrimental psychologically but it can also contribute to more excessive fat gain which fat gain post-show is normal and we want it but not to an excessive rate so uh, depends what I found with competing was my I always got HA through competing and the first time it took a long time to get it back but then by the time I'd finished competing it was coming back within like a month or two after competing so I think it's not you don't want to be going through it you don't want to normalize it it's not a normal thing um I think we have to be really careful of saying it's normal to lose your period it's not and it should never be normalized but obviously you can manage it as best you can um and we'll obviously manage it but I've never taken someone I've never stopped someone training completely post-show have you no no like, I think like we said last week I think mental health comes into it so much I mean you don't train for those kind of competitions unless you enjoy training yeah um so yeah pulling it out completely no just reducing the intensity yep Agreed. Right. Diet breaks. Louie, I'm going to pull you in on this one. Um, diet breaks. How often are they usually needed? Brackets. I know this probably depends. Um, and what sort of factors do you consider when you decide if and when a client will have a diet break? And how do you tend to integrate diet breaks for clients? Because it sounds like there's many different camps around um, how long to do diet breaks to make them somewhat effective. What do you do? Um, so it's I would never because well, I think type diet breaks is more of a fitness sphere sort of quote and or term and for most people it might be just saying have a more relaxed week or going to be more relaxed with your nutrition potentially um how often again as you have said it depends like you could have a diet break every second day if you wanted to you could diet one day and then go back up to maintenance and that would be fine. It would be slower progress, but it might be more suitable for your lifestyle and your goals 
and what you value most. Um, there's lots of factors that I would consider with people, how long we've been dieting for, if they've hit a certain plateau point where we're at certain calorie levels and we know that the longer you sort of diet or track, the more inaccurate tracking tends to become. People become a bit more relaxed with certain things, portion sizes. So if we can, if someone's hitting a certain point where they're struggling to lose weight or they might have something scheduled anyway where like they've got a week away on holiday, um, then we might schedule it in there because it fits in with their general lifestyle and schedule. Um, to get the physiological benefits, really, I think it's anything past three days. You two might know more about this, but from what I remember, it's um, past three days and then they look to restore sort of your ghrelin and leptin levels to a decent amount if you've been dieting for a certain amount of time. Um, but there's, it depends on the individual's goals and what they want to do. If it's more of a lifestyle sort of fat loss over time, then we might incorporate them more often if they have a more of a more of a social life just to give them that flexibility where it matches more in with what their lifestyle looks like yeah yeah i, I mean i agree i think i have a, a broad range of clients in the sense of some of them have structured refeed some of them might just have like time off so to speak some diet breaks might look like let's have a week off tracking and just because you're busy you you know how to be mindful that's technically a diet break we're not going to work to any sort of calories just be mindful this week and that would be classed as a diet break but in terms of if we're looking at it more in the fitness sense as you said Louis, like you ideally you want three consecutive days and you want to bring your calories up to maintenance at minimum predominantly from carbohydrates and that's kind of in that sense what a traditional diet break would be but i will do diet breaks over two days and push carbs a bit higher push calories a bit higher if it's somebody who for example Maybe they're, maybe they're a bit pushed for time, but we want some sort of physiological benefit in some way, shape or form. I'll just do a bit of a shorter one because, so what we need is those three days to increase um, leptin levels and leptin acts as a hormone to reduce hunger. So that's why one of the reasons that we have diet breaks. But you may not get the substantial, significant increase in leptin from two days, but you will get enjoyment. You will get improved sleep quality. You will get restore glycogen levels to some degree so training will be better your meat might be slightly increased again for a couple of days and these are all things that reduce when dieting so i will implement them with clients if they've got social occasion if they are very flat say and they're reporting that they feel tired that they're lethargic i'll implement it for some people when they're not flat or lethargic or too lean i'll implement them for some people if they've actually plateaued and it might be a full week where I bring them up to maintenance. And like you said, Louis, like it can that often people are inadvertently mistracking and it's not an intentional thing or a, or a conscious thing. But actually bringing calories back up to maintenance makes people retrack and introduce new foods. And then they track a little bit more meticulously so that then when they come back down to diet macros again, they diet more in a more precise way so it's not even that sometimes it'll be because someone's not making fat loss progress and sometimes it'll be because someone's making really fast fat loss progress um and yeah frequency is very very dependent on the person um do you have anything to add on that anna no no okay next question this may have been from last week as well so i just want to cover this one just in case um Anna, um, how to feel comfortable when you don't have access to a gym? 
So some people are still obviously training at home at the moment. Um, or I think this person is actually very busy and traveling, I think. So hasn't doesn't have access to a gym. So how do you cope in terms of, yeah, just being out of your training schedule, like mentally, I suppose, is where the question's going? Um, make it as fun as you can. Since <laughs> like, at home. Yeah. If you if you're training at home, good playlist. I mean, I know you liked your sassy gym outfit. I liked pajamas. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I think just yes, it sucks. Um, but you can make it. Like, do what you enjoy doing. Whatever you're enjoying training. Um, use this as a chance to completely burn out with some supersets and work into failure if you've not got access to all the weights. Um, what about, so I think this person, I think this person is talking about like traveling. So as in for a week when you can't go to the gym and do your usual training. So potentially are out of training for a week, like completely and not training at home, say. So like if you're away for a week and you just not go to the gym. I mean, I'd enjoy it at the minute. <laughs> I am ready for a deload week. Um, yeah, no, I think just make the most of it then. If, you've, if you're having a week off, then if you want to move, great. Do, do something new. Do something different. Explore if you've got the chance to have a wander about. Or, I don't know, I have I've had two clients that have had to quarantine because they've either moved home abroad or gone off to work abroad. And a couple of them are dancing around their hotel room at the minute because they're not allowed outside so yeah I think you just yeah you just got to do what what you enjoy and what you can yeah I actually wish I could remember I feel really bad because I've put all these questions into one big list and I've not put names on it and I feel really bad um I don't know yeah it could be a quarantine situation as well in this situation I'm not sure but I also think as well like same with the rest days like I love the extra time that today as well, I did spend 40 minutes trying to bloody pivot myself. <laughs> but the extra time that you get to do anything, even if it's work, like you feel so productive at the end of the day. And you just think for a week, it doesn't do anything. Physiologically, it does nothing but benefit you for a week to, to take a week off training. Realistically, um, you go back stronger, recovered, ready to go. All it does is just give you a bit of extra time. Yeah, if it was like every other week, then it would be a bit like, uh, like that will hinder your progress over time. But a week is like, that's awesome. You get to recover, you get so much more productive time, and then you go back stronger. Do you have anything to add on it, Louis? I'm just going to jump on the back of what you said there. I think it was from Katrin Dava's daughter's biography I read a while ago, and her coach said something like, instead of seeing obstacles, see opportunity. And instead of saying what you can't do right now, have a look at what you can do, like you said, having the opportunity to get more stuff done. Or like we all did when lockdown first happened, we all tried new things, new new types of exercise. And it might be a time to sort of get out of your potential routine and go explore new avenues. So I know Amelia started handstanding and she'd done one on the sand the other day and held it for ages. And that's sort of like been months of progress. But that and that's but all of us have explored things potentially that from getting away from the gym have found new things that we enjoy. So see it as an opportunity to try something new something that you might have seen online and went oh that looks really cool but I'll do it another time how about trying it now yeah so much I used to force myself to do yoga when I used to have to go away like during my PhD and I was like proper 
insane gym, literally doing insanity, I think, at the time. And then that went away and I would do something like yoga and it was just like, I hated it. But when you're away in a hotel room, you're like, I'll just do it. It's always good for you. Um, okay, Anna, do you want to go for one of your questions? Yes. Uh, let me find it. I mean, okay. So, I, I mean, I don't think as far as I'm aware, there's no research because I think this is everybody's global pandemic, first global pandemic. So there probably isn't any current research. <laughs> but um, so obviously training at home at the minute, what is the potential gains that can be made when returning back to the gym? If they're, they're still currently training, um progressive overload in some way same as same as always if you're genuinely progressive overloading so if you look at the research obviously there's no pandemic research as such there's not even any mobile like immobilization research isn't even accurate because it's complete immobilization and that generally is like the two extremes that you get in research but if you look at the research around what we're literally doing right now is comparing gym training which is hypertrophy range heavyweights etc to a more metabolic stimulus and we know that the hypertrophy range and the mechanical tension that comes from that like 8 to 12 reps we know that that is optimal for hypertrophy but the the predominant base of research that looks at like comparing um like different training styles as long as you suggest that as long as you're training to failure it doesn't matter if you're training with light loads with high reps versus if you're training with slightly lower reps um as long as you're trained to failure the results in terms of hypertrophy are similar your strength is slightly different your strength profile is slightly different in terms of how you um how you train but in terms of hypertrophy it should technically be relatively similar it's not going to be as far as i'm aware i think the newer research is suggesting that we still like metabolic stimulus for example is is not great but it's still something um, there's not like a quantitative amount if you are training to failure you are still going to get progression will that transfer to your list when you go back to the gym no because your movement patterns haven't been practiced you're lifting in a different like your range is going to be different your strength is going to be down but your strength in this situation is not necessarily reflective of your muscle progression like your muscle mass um, and your hypertrophy progression They're, they are different um, outcome measures to look at do you have anything on that, Louis? Yeah, um, I can't remember who it might have been. Luke, who said that muscles don't know weight, they know tension. And I think that's the main thing to take away, that like we go to the gym because it's easy to create more tension with more weight through the muscles. But if you can develop that mind-muscle technique, so concentrating on the muscle groups that are working and making it more difficult. So people go straight away and go, I want to get big legs, I'm going to go to a, a squat rack. Well, actually doing sprinter squats or split squats single leg really slowly and keeping active tension on the muscle it's horrible and it's much nicer to get you to eight to 15 or 8 to 12 reps in a squat rack however it's still going to create a very similar probably not the same response plus there's so many other variables that you have to consider and a lot of it's genetic potential so the thing is that we you haven't got an exact you and you one control what you control the controllables like we said earlier so 
understanding if you haven't got access to a gym or not training the gym or choosing not to then understanding right that's the decision this is what i have to do and also going well there isn't two exact same people so maybe i don't know what the alternate reality of this will be so deal with the here and now and yeah it would be create as much tension and work to failure slower reps supersets um rest pause rest sets as well and things like that were really really then not the most enjoyable i don't particularly like them um and they're hard to get to that failure point but if you are chasing gains with very limited weights then that's probably the best way to go yeah i think that's the point i think when you're training at home and i speak from experience it is a lot tougher to push yourself to failure at home not for everyone but for most people the drive to push yourself through reps the drive to actually get to the point where you can't physically lift anymore that's i think that's probably out of everything is probably the main sticking second point in terms of progression it's not what you've got available to it's the ability to push to that failure point it just it's tough when you're at home yeah, yeah. Um, Louis, do you have a question? Um, I've got a few. One of them was um, to discuss the pros and cons and things to consider when weighing multiple times a week versus a single weigh in a week. Hmm. Yeah, we speak about this a lot on EIQ, or we have done on EIQ Live, so we get this question quite a lot. Um, there's pros and obviously pros and cons to both. For if you are emotionally attached to the scale you could potentially benefit from not having, not weighing yourself at all. Um, in the sense of, if we look at it in an extreme way, if scale weight triggers you into emotional eating or it triggers you into certain behaviours or makes you feel a certain way, then you can completely remove it. So that's even less than once a week. That's just completely removing it. Um, whereas weighing yourself every single time, every single day, if you're emotionally attached to skills, could also be beneficial in the sense that you can then see objectively oh my goodness, I weighed two kilos more today or I dropped two kilos and you're like, well, I've done absolutely nothing really different and my scale weight's fluctuated. So if you're emotionally attached to the scale and you can see how much it fluctuates day to day, that can also actually be really helpful. You have to be very, very honest with yourself. In terms of weighing once a week, um, I do, we, obviously we use that on, you know, in our check-ins once a week and would they have a, there's a box there for people to put in additional weights should they be requested or desired um because what's useful about that is so for example if i've got someone weighing once a week i will compare that week to four weeks ago so they'll be if it's a woman so if they're you know they're at the same stage of their menstrual cycle so we can get that kind of boxed off in terms of any sort of comparison um and it gives us a rough a rough range a, a good way to do it sometimes is to take a three-day rolling average and get an average of those three days. Generally speaking, if you're taking it consistently in the morning in the same conditions on the same day of the week and your diet is relatively consistent, then that scale weight number is not going to fluctuate too much. Um, I think it. I always think it comes down to how to personal preference on this one and being completely honest with yourself. Like, for example, like I think I've said this before. I don't own scales. I don't. I haven't owned scales in years and years. Like, I don't think... They never treat me well, so I just don't see the point. Um, but I know that for other people, and I know that for some of my fat loss clients, we just don't weigh because, actually, that's been a sticking point for some of them, and they self-sabotage when they get to a certain weight. Um, and then I know other people that 
I like to you know what I was really attached to that number and then when I started weighing myself every day I realized that it was relevant because it, it changes so much and what we're looking for is that overall change and so that really helps them I think you have to be really really honest with yourself if you're someone who is attached to it and you're weighing yourself every day and you're getting upset by it but you're not being honest with yourself about that then then that's I think that's the issue more than anything else what do you think Anna uh yeah I completely agree. I think we went over the the benefits of both removing them and weighing in every day, just so you you get that idea and you it can help lose that attachment to the scale. Um, I mean, like you, I don't weigh unless I go to the doctors and they ask me. I'm I'm just not that fussed anymore. It is what it is. Like the first time I got weighed, I think beginning of the year at the doctors and it, you know initially I was like oh, I don't know how I'm going to react and then I was like oh well that's interesting <laughs> it is what it is yeah um but I think it can be useful um to understand the trends I mean when I was a client of yours I used to hate it because I weighed in on a Monday after a weekend and Monday was my earliest start at work so I hadn't slept well and I was like oh, but like you said, if you look over the weeks and over a month, then you get that trend. And it's it's just not worth stressing about at the end of the day. Yeah, agreed. Do you have anything on that, Lee? No, completely agree. You both covered it. Yeah, it's funny. It's, it is funny. You know when you get out of it and you just think to yourself, my God, I was obsessed with that number. And it's in it, when you completely detach yourself from it and you re, like you realise it, it's literally just an arbitrary number. Yeah, it's great. If you're in fourth of us, yeah, it's great seeing overall trend. But God, we get so attached to it. Like it's it's scary when you just think about it when there's so many other things that you can be looking at. It's interesting how attached we get to it, I think. Um, okay, I'll go for the next question. Um Okay, so in your EIQ Live and, t and the team podcast, you mentioned how people will listen to their body signals in the main, but when it comes to hunger, they will just not accept it. So the basis of this is that, um, I, was this, I don't know if this was our podcast or EIQ, but we, we'll listen to thirst, we'll listen to the fact that we need to pee, we'll listen to the fact we need to sleep, but we won't listen to hunger. And this, that's what the basis of this is. Um, how do you encourage your clients to trust their body again um, AKA, we know I don't trust my body and I feel attacked that this is me. <laughs> it obviously was not this person. Um, so yeah, how do, you entrust, how do you encourage your clients to trust their body again? Do you have anything on that, Louis? Um, for, it would be encourage, encouraging general and overall mindfulness that we encourage as a team anyway. Uh, mindful meals being a part of that. But I think it, it's, if you are struggling to engage in that general overall feeling of how you are, um, it's, it might even start with just identifying emotions to start with and just becoming more in tune with how you're feeling. And then also using things like a hunger scale at a meal um, initially. So looking at where you sit on the scale before, during and after the meal. And then using that as a guide instead of if you are tracking at the moment. So if you are relearning, relying on external cues, then post tracking it. So using it, I've a few times I've spoken to a few few people about using um, tracking to to make their food decisions when actually it's a food log. So using it as a diary retrospectively can be really helpful in doing that. So making your decisions on 
what amount of food you want, what size the portions are, and almost like guesstimating from there in a food log of what portion you had. And then at the end of the day, looking at the calories then and the macros then can be a good sort of stepping stone in that direction. Yeah. Yeah, I think you just touched on something there that I just want to expand a bit on is that idea of, I think a really good thing of uh, is to actually recognise what your hunger signals actually are. So comparing, for example, emotional hunger versus physical hunger. And obviously when you have that emotional hunger, it's it's very much, you know, it's quick onset. You've got specific cravings. Um, you feel guilt when you eat around emotional hunger, whereas physical hunger tends to be more gradual. You might get you might just be hungry for your kind of usual meal you might get a feeling in your stomach that is obviously grilling related which is that grumbling in your stomach um and then also like you said louis that those the difference between the internal cues and your external cues so if you feel if you can identify in that situation if you feel hungry because your stomach is um rumbling or if it's because you've got a drop in energy for example you know that that's internal cues whereas if you know that you're in an environment surrounded by cake and May, or maybe you're really upset and you're sat and you, you want chocolate identifying that yes this is an internal cue and yes this is a physical hunger it's not external and it's not emotional then you're ticking all these boxes that says these are genuine physiological symptoms here and then asking yourself why would i ignore this genuine physiological symptom um of hunger and that's not then that doesn't come down to trust in your hunger cues that then comes down to aligning yourself with what your goals are at that point and if your goals are looking at exact for example improving your relationship with food by listening to your hunger and internal cues then look at your goals and say how does this align with my goal does this does me eating in response to physical hunger and internal cues align with my goal of improving my relationship with food yes it does okay so what is the easiest option for me to do here is the easiest option for me to eat in response to these cues or is the easiest option for me to not eat in response to these cues and actually taking the action that aligns with it and thinking to yourself right well in an hour's time do i want to be hungry and still thinking about food or in an hour's time do i want to be satisfied and proud that i've made that decision based on um my long-term goals or even my short-term goals um it is an interest it is an interesting one that and it was just something that cropped up in conversation where we it is that kind of thing where we we will hunger is the one signal that we don't trust in our body we, i mean we trust our gut when it when we walk up to an asshole man and we ask this out we're like mm, my gut says i probably shouldn't go out with you and there's no psych there's no physiological bit like underpinning to that but we trust it but then if it goes oh i really want a meal right now we're like mm, but do you like mm. It reminds me, I know you obviously, I think you'll know what I'm on about and anybody that's read Untamed, there's a part in that where uh, Glennon talks about, I think it's her daughter or her kids and she says how they, she asks if they want food and the boys like kind of ask themselves, whereas the girls look around the room trying to judge what everyone else is doing and I think that that speaks volumes to us, obviously we dieting wise we spend years ignoring hunger signals so much so that we forget what it feels like or we're fearing what others might think of us when actually we just need to learn mm. to honor how we feel and do what we need to do for us rather than anybody else yeah that's so true and I wonder how much it aligns with that whole like because obviously in that book she's talking about um 
where the ultimate goal of a woman is to be selfless the ultimate compliment of a woman is to be selfless and I wonder how much of it aligns with that idea of us not putting ourselves first so us not allowing ourselves to make decisions based on what our inner knowing is saying or in this situation our literal physiological selves are saying because we are trying to we are trying to still maintain this perfection selfless image it's all it's all intertwined with the patriarchy it's all the patriarchy's fault <laughs> i think there's a huge element of the fear of being judged as well with being in tune and going against the grain mm. um i know one of my clients today went out for food and beforehand they looked at dessert and was like oh i'll have this main i'll have this dessert but then she didn't end up having dessert even though she still wanted it because her friends weren't having it and i think it's not just that decision but it's the potential backlash and how we've always said that like people think it's okay to comment on other people's food decisions and being in an environment where you're not feared being judged and you can discuss things that are true to you and around food around your hunger and things like that can be a stepping stone into sort of opening up and um opening up being true to yourself around food decisions Mm. yeah and again that comes down to obviously having your boundaries doesn't it and and knowing where your boundaries are and be willing to not be willing to step up and show up for yourself and say i am worth having these boundaries and i am worth making these decisions for myself um and i'm not going to conform just because it's you know no one else is so it's a selfless thing to do um yeah interesting Okay, um, I'll go for a question. Exercising and your menstrual cycle, should I be doing things or eating differently during each stage of my cycle? We covered this a couple of weeks ago, didn't we? Um, I'm not I'm not sure. I think, I, yeah, because JPS put up a really good post about it um, because I know there's been a lot of stuff going around recently about how everyone all the women all the women should be trained like this at this stage of their menstrual cycle and you will feel definitely like this um when we know the research isn't there and usually it's people trying to make money off posting these very absolute statements it's very independent on the individual if at certain times of the month you are feeling a certain way you notice a trend object take a step back and objectively don't get emotionally invested going i'm going to feel like this tomorrow oh it's the start of my period tomorrow and i know the world falls apart and everything's gonna go wrong at work because and everything like that instead of predicting just going oh i'm at this stage of my cycle this happens every month okay how do i deal with it oh i don't feel as strong this week okay so maybe i'll lower the load a little bit and i'll take it as a deload week and i'll schedule that in just in case and i'll see how i feel next month but I know that I can always go down to a deload if I need to. And just listening to, again, it's coming back to listening to yourself. And instead of looking at people, what people are saying on Instagram is, oh, this is the new sort of research around women should train different, four different stages of the menstrual cycle. They should train differently on each week. That's definitely not the case, especially on such a broad spectrum. If some individuals, it may be the case that they adjust their training slightly. But um, I wouldn't suggest that you go looking for it. I'd say, just observe and see how you feel and if you notice a trend then you may need to adjust but if you do speak through with your coach and say i'm noticing this um and yeah that's what i would suggest 
Yeah, I think that we can't be naive to the the information that is out there in the minds of people. There is some. There is one specific outspoken person who has put together some research that is quite flawed and suggested that as a result of this research that women need to train less during their luteal phase, which is the week before, two weeks before your period. Um, and actually, to be fair, there is some research, um, like RCTT research, so randomised controlled trials research, that have actually looked at training increased volume and in the follicular phase, so the first few weeks, versus and then training lower in the luteal phase and getting improved um, strength and hypertrophy as a result. So there is some research there. However, um, interestingly, actually, this came out after the podcast that we spoke about this last time, is there a review came out recently and actually said that, so the, the, it was a meta-analysis, which basically means it was a paper that took lots of different scientific papers and put them all together and did a review on them basically and did run some stats on them and what they actually found was that actually it might be better that actually there was some strength changes if people trained more people had lower strength sorry in the follicular phase so in the beginning of their cycle which is the complete opposite of what everyone's been saying for the last however many years saying that people are stronger in their follicular phase and weaker in the, in the luteal. So actually, when they put all the research together, the research was the opposite of what everyone's been saying. So there is research to support either side, and that's the issue. And I think that's the issue, well, that's the issue with the industry as a whole in terms of people just cherry-picking data. Um, there's research to suggest that you could potentially be stronger at the beginning. There's research to suggest that you could potentially be stronger at the end. So like Louis said, it's so, so, so individual um, that you can't, make a specific decision and then I put a post out yesterday about like oral contraceptives and how that impacts things and what that tends to do is it stops it does actually stop any fluctuations that you get in strength so it's a lot more consistent um again like the outcome of that review was it's very person specific the research level in this area is really low the quality of the papers is really low so it's a it's a scary field because people can find research on this, especially in this area, to support any message they want. And mechanistically, it makes sense because of the estrogen fluctuations that we get across our cycle. Mechanistically, it makes sense that we would have reduced recovery and reduced strength during the luteal phase, so before our period. But when we actually look at it in terms of the research, in terms of whole whole body research, it's not supported. Uh, well, supported by some, but not the others. Um, so, like you said, Louis, it's very, you don't want to anticipate it, but if you notice it for yourself, then you speak to your coach or speak to me in this situation and we manage it. I've got one client who, um, she's just finishing up actually, but we she doesn't do her training with me, but she she trains really, really well. And we But we looked at that and we actually really did front load her training and we did six days a week for two days, for two weeks. And then I think we did three or four days a week. I think it might have been three for two weeks. And she absolutely loved it. She found a huge benefit. And she went from not being able to take a rest day to being able to go, I'm taking these four, three or four rest days each week because it's it's in line with my cycle, it's in line with my strength, and this really works for me. And so her mindset around rest days was infinitely improved and her training was the best it was ever been. So like you you can if you work in line with how your body feels if you do notice fluctuations you can really take advantage of it but you just can't base it on what an influencer said who lost her period who then decides that that's how you have to train 
another thing to add on in there as well is to get all your other ducks in a row before that as well instead of just going oh i'm on a period or whatever part of the cycle you're in and you say oh i'm going to be weaker this week well actually maybe you're not focusing on your sleep or your nutrition's not where it should be that there's so many facets to all these things that just going right it's that one thing dictating the whole outcome it may play a part i'm not going to say it doesn't but having a look at the overall picture as well is really important and also for some people so for some people again not everyone they get an increase in appetite and in, in with pms and so their, their bmr can increase about 15 percent, which is about 150 to 200 calories and so that happens for some people but for so for some people they might increase their calories either they're honoring their hunger or they've gone up to maintenance or however they're doing it and actually they might be like do you know what i've got tons of energy i'm, eat, I'm eating more because i'm hungrier i, I feel strong because i've had an extra bowl of oats and I, I can have a really good training session so you're totally right you've got to look at all factors on this um i'm just going to cover one more just because i've got i think i've got quite a lot here um and this one's quite an interesting one not that they're not all interesting <laughs> so um are pins and needles linked to overtraining or underfueling, or are they ha linked as in hypothalamic amenorrhea linked i heard on igtv that it was um up until this last week or so, or since starting with you, I suffered with severe pins and needles at night. Um, and and also dodgy sleep and having to wake up at night to pee. And this is really interesting because Hannah, she won't mind me saying this because she put it onto the Facebook group. I'm sure she won't mind. She'd asked about pins and needles. I don't know if you remember this. Yeah, yeah. And so I just, I, like, I looked up to get a bit more information at that time um to see if i could help hannah but it is related to estrogen fluctuations because estrogen impacts our central nervous system if you are suffering with ha or if you have pms or if you are going through menopause so all different stages that our, all of our clients will be in it does um your estrogen fluctuates and it impacts your central nervous system, which then can contribute to pins and needles, and it can also contribute to poor sleep. So this client um, has kind of nailed both of those symptoms in one situation, and, is, and luckily has improved on both of those. Um, but yeah, it is, and and I didn't say this to Hannah at the time because I only researched it after she'd asked this question. But yeah, because of the impact of estrogen on the central nervous system, it can impact pins and needles and sleep, which I think is really really interesting. So I knew about mm. sleep, but I am now definitely going to be monitoring pins and needles and putting it into my tracker. <laughs> but, oh. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, obviously, again, mechanistically, it makes complete sense. But you never, like, if you look at the research between HA and pins and needles, nothing really comes up. But if you look at the research, obviously, mm. around like, estrogen, then it comes up. But I thought that was a really interesting question. Yes. And yeah. learn for us all. <laughs> Very cool. Um, okay, Anna, do you want to go for a question? Yes. Uh, let me find it. Um, so, as we get into a deficit, um, as in already dieting, but further into the deficit, into the deepest, darkest parts of prep, <laughs> no, this, um, what is your opinion on pushing PBs? Should we be pushing to failure or hanging back a little? 
So my opinion is if you, uh, my opinion and in my experience as well in terms of physique athletes, the people that make the most progress, even with fat loss, even though we don't think about training in terms of fat loss per se, the people that make the best body composition changes tend to be the people that continue to lift really, really well all the way throughout their prep. They don't slack on it. I think that in an ideal situation, and this is, this, I'm not saying this happens with every one of my clients, it doesn't, and it's for various reasons, but in an ideal situation, you want to get to a point a month before your show where actually you can start to bring food up and you can reduce the stress on your body that way whilst continuing to push your training up until like maybe the week before, for example. Um, you obviously have to be mindful that you're at increased risk of injury at that point, so you don't want to be... like. I wouldn't be pushing to pee for PBs on squats at three weeks out from a show. It would A, make me want to die, but B, I just wouldn't want to risk that on on someone's body. So I wouldn't do that. Leg press, fine, whatever. Um, so I am a firm believer of continuing to train um, and continuing to push hard, provided that you are training safely and efficiently. Um, I don't see a problem with that. I think it's, it's quite tough to do. And I... I, don't, I mean I didn't make it through a single prep where I didn't cry in the gym at some point at the depths of hell but if you, but I think it's so important it's so important to try I don't know what your opinion is on that yeah no complete agreement I think like you said the the people that physique wise if they've pushed hard through prep um, then yeah you, you, I think you can tell like I think dieting, yes, it gets tough, but you can't, you, you're putting yourself in that position. And I think there are some people that can go, oh, do you know what? I'm dieting. I feel really tired today or I'm really hungry, so I'm going to back off. And you're like, well, if you keep on pushing harder, you can expend a bit more and get there a bit faster or maybe earn yourself a refeed. I don't know. Like, yeah. And it is hard. Like, I think I, I was having this discussion actually with one of my clients this morning where we were talking about, like, like I don't normally say to clients in general, you know, eat this pre-workout, eat this post-workout. But when you're on prep, at a certain point on prep, it's like, right, you ideally want to be having this percentage of your carbs before training because it, at that point, it does help you continue to get that intensity that you need to, to push in your training. And you can't be so lax with just, I'm just going to hit my macros and it's fine. You then have to go, oh, right, actually, I am going to keep my carbs for before training because you are on poverty macros at that point. Yeah. Um, do you have anything to add on that, Louis? No, nothing. I think that's really, especially towards the end when you're in such a, let's say, delicate state that you don't want to be going out there pushing to potentially undo all the hard work that you've put yourself through so far with either a small strain or something like that can really impact your training the amount you move and then you then you've weighing up the focus of whether you're going to promote and prioritize recovery or still competing all these things so yeah towards the last few weeks i probably wouldn't go for it but in the early stages when you're still on a decent amount of calories then yeah push for it and get get the hard yards in early if you can and then try to if you if it is towards the end of it that you're maintaining strength and you've pb'd early on then you still you're still in a good position going forward yeah um okay lou do you have any more questions um i've got a few 
um, but I have a feeling they're quite in depth, so it depends on time yeah. for everyone. Let's go for one more question from yours, and then we can do another podcast with the other questions. Um, so I had a question, and it was around taking Vitex during the menstrual cycle, and um, they had heard whether you take it or not during your actual period, um, or if you take it consistently. And I just wanted to open up to the floor and see what everyone's thoughts were on it. Oh, we're on the floor. Um, my opinion or my what I recommend is not taking it on bleeding days, taking it on non-bleeding days only. Yeah, yeah, complete agreement. Why would that be? Because the research that I've looked at took it on those days. Um, and that's that's the only reason I looked at supplementation protocols. Um, when I started using it for myself before I started recommending it to clients, um, and that was what when I did the research, that was what I looked at. That was swift. <laughs> yeah. oh, right, nothing to add. <laughs> Do you want to go for another one, Lee? Um, so um, I've got a client who's post-op at the moment from an ACL reconstruction. Um, so dealing with injury, the dieting aspect, um, or the diet aspect, not dieting, and mental aspects of that as well. Mm. Okay. Anna, do you want to go first? Or... Um, I think, and I'm going to use ESG as a prime example. Mm. Bless her. <laughs> yeah, ex exactly. She's done uh, she has, and she she just gave herself the time that she needed to rest and recover um I'm assuming nutritionally she did everything that she needed to and prioritized protein and yeah again much like home training I think I've said this every podcast now but it's sucky but you just need to do what what's best for you and just don't be a dick like <laughs> allow your body to recover do everything you can to speed things up where possible and yeah yeah I think I think that it's it's really tough right I've been there I had two hernias I couldn't lift a pint of milk for six weeks like I under like I get it and the an ACL recovery is horrendous um, and I feel for you but it's very much it's, it's very hard mentally, but it, again, it kind of, like, if you look at it on the basic level, controllables are non-controllables, right? You can only control, you can't control your recovery other than supporting yourself with your nutrition. You can't control the fact that you can't train. It's, it is crap, but you physically can't do anything about it. So when you have those thoughts of being frustrated, simply, like, ask yourself, like, what can I do about it? And if the answer is nothing, you can be like, oh, that's really shit. And it is really shit, but it's you can't do anything about it. I actually had this discussion with my brother the other day because he was, uh, my dad doesn't listen to my podcast, so it's fine. My dad was like, my brother was like, I think dad might be losing it a little bit. And I was like, that's really horrible. This is really horrible. You know, it's our dad and it's horrible to see it, but this is natural part of life. And what can we actually do about it? Probably nothing. So we just kind of have to just go, this is crap. This is the situation. And we kind of roll with it as best we can. Um, like I have a client who's just come out of surgery herself and it's very much about not letting it impact your other habits. So 
So she's like really right, okay, I'm going to be on it with my protein. I'm going to be on it with my creatine and my omega-3, um, my vitamin D, all of the supplements that will help her recover. She's like, I'm going to control these things because I can. Um, reduce my alcohol intake because I can and kind of get excited for what I can do when I get back, but I can't physically do anything about it now. I can completely, like, we can all relate. I think with injuries as well, you can kind of be like, oh, I'm an athlete. This is just what happens. And give yourself a little bit of kudos and be like, mm-hmm, it's just a natural part of being an athlete because it is, unfortunately, and we all get injured in some way. Um, Louis, what, like, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think it's like we spoke about earlier a bit, um, embracing the opportunity that you've got now. So you've got probably a lot more time on your hands. You're sat down for a lot longer. So like we've got the thread in the the thread in the group for amazing list of books. So it might be worth digging into a few of those potentially and like using that time. She has started moving. Um, her physio has just given her the go ahead to do some of her body and start moving a bit more and um, like some light cycling. So I think that's given her a bit more of a lease of life really because um, she is quite active. But yeah, it's mentally, it's going to be tough. And I think when I, when I was a rugby player that was probably the darkest times for me were probably when I was injured because it does feel like you're alone through the process so having people around you who can that you can talk to about these things about how difficult it is or people who have been through the process can be really helpful as well I find Mm. yeah cool okay I think we will stop there if your question hasn't been answered I promise we will do it on the next podcast and thanks for asking them and keep asking them and then we can keep doing regular podcasts because we'll have so many questions well thank you both guys thanks Thanks. Bye. bye bye